You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. Our third sponsor is Diffie Ford Lincoln down in El Reno. Now, this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine, um, play a lot of golf together. I've bought my cars from them. Do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. This episode is presented by the Choctaw Nation. The Choctaw people have a rich history and a bright future. At the Choctaw Cultural Center, you can take part in a story 14,000 years in the making. Stroll through our immersive exhibits portraying Choctaw life from the moment our ancestors emerged from the Nani Wayhai in Mississippian homelands to the Trail of Tears, where we lost so many loved ones, and finally to the modern-day tribe making a positive impact on local communities throughout southeastern Oklahoma. Try your hand at our social dancing and stickball and learn more about our vibrant culture through demonstrations, workshops, and classes. The kids will have a blast in our Luxie Activity Center. The Choctaw Cultural Center is more than a museum. It's a living, breathing experience. Visit ChoctawCulturalCenter.com to plan your visit. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hunt here, your host, back with another episode. Today, it gives me great pleasure to bring an episode to you with Anita Arnold. Uh, we are down in Oklahoma City, very near the Capitol building, and we've got some great stories coming your way today. Uh, going to talk a lot about history, going to talk a lot about Charlie Christian. Uh, if you don't know that name, uh, you will by the end of this podcast, and you know some amazing things that he has done, and um, just all the amazing things that the, my guest today has done, and the many stories. I'm sure we're not going to get to all of the stories, because very rarely do we get to all the stories, but That's we're right. going to get to some. Um, so, Anita, thank you so much for inviting me into your wonderful office. Um, I love walking into an office that doesn't have blank walls, right? And you've right. got every space that could be filled in this office, you've pretty much got something in it. So I love seeing that. Um, it's kind of like what my office looks like. There's just stuff everywhere, but you know where everything is, right? That's correct. That's all that matters. That's right. Uh, so when people meet you, it's kind of generally how we start the podcast is how, how do you um, kind of, uh, exp not explain, but how do you say, you know, this is who I am, this is what I do? What, what do you kind of tell people? I tell people that I'm Anita Golden Arnold, uh, a native Oklahoman, mm -hmm. born and raised until I was 13 at Route 1, Box 31, Tecumseh, Oklahoma. And yes, that's a farm. And I grew up on the farm until I was 13 years old. 
and uh, I moved to the city. And everything that I had started, you know, while a student down at Earlsboro, that was the name of the school that we went to, Douglas at Earlsboro. Uh, I was taking piano lessons. I was writing some songs. I just knew I was going to be another Stevie Wonder. Uh, if he could do it, certainly I could, and I had my sight. <laughs> so um, at any rate, I learned living on the farm that hard work pays off. And it was hard work on the farm, and I couldn't wait to leave. And I promised God and everybody else I would never return if I ever left, and I did. I, I moved to Oklahoma City with my mother, who was working here, living here, and working here which was common during those times. You know, you weren't making that much money on the farm. And so the children would of the farmer many times would move to a larger city so that they could become employed and enjoy the life that they really wanted to live. Mm -hmm. So when I came to Oklahoma City at the age 13, uh, certainly I had fallen into the bright lights. Um, I had never seen anything like Frederick A. Douglass, junior, senior high school. We were, I was um, in the eighth grade when I came here, and it was a wonderful experience. Uh, this school drew people from all over the world, really, uh, to come because of the music that was going on in the school for the most part. Uh, I remember Marion Anderson coming to our school when I was uh, in in the eighth grade, uh, one of the classmates was asked to take on a tour of the, of the school. And that was the first time that I had been on stage because I was asked by the teacher who was in charge of the assembly to uh, come on the stage, and do the flag salute, read a scripture from the Bible, and... Uh, say this prayer that she had written out. I had never been on the stage before, and so when I walked out, I was nervous. I had my finger in the place where I was supposed to read from the Bible, and I had the little prayer, you know, in there too. And so they asked us to salute the flag first. Well, I lost my place in the Bible. <laughs> And my knees were knocking, and I could, you know, and I got up there. And the only good thing was my grandfather, who built the church house that we attended down in Earlsboro, Oklahoma, was a very spiritual man, and he read the Bible all the time. So fortunately for me, I knew the 23rd Psalm. So I was saying it from memory and searching hard, you know, to try to find a place, and I never did find a place. And then I read the prayer, and by then I was so nervous, I wasn't sure that I was seeing everything that she had. That was the Marian Anderson visit. And uh, of course, the teacher told me I did a wonderful job, but my legs were jelly, for sure. But I got over it, and pretty soon I fit in to what was going on in school. And at that time, I did not talk very much. I was an introvert. That people find that hard to believe these days, but I really was an introvert, and I loved school. 
and I studied a lot, so I was an honor student, you know, throughout my little high school days, and then I had several scholarships when I went off to college. And uh, if I thought Oklahoma City was the bright lights with all the bands playing and all that, um, my first college venture, and I had many because I loved learning and loved books, so uh, Howard University is where I went in Washington, D.C., and that really was the bright lights. I was uh, rather disillusioned when I first got there because I had been watching the news, and they always had the lights on the top of the Capitol, and it looked like it was just gleaming white. Well, in reality, it was dirty. It was just really dirty by the time, and I thought, oh, gee, just burst my bubble. So I finally got over the capital being dirty and in the slums, it was. But exciting things were happening. Uh, President Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, was, uh, I guess, finishing up his term as president. And he was in office. And the only thing I thought at that time as a 17-year-old was that he liked to play golf a lot. So I figured... If he could play golf and be president, you know, surely the only difference between me and him was I didn't play golf. <laughs> so I thought, I think now, I said, boy, you have crazy ideas when you're 17 years old. But I remember Queen Elizabeth came to Washington, D.C., and everybody went to see Queen Elizabeth. She had not been on the throne that long. And I just stayed at the dormitory and played cards. I could not relate to Queen Elizabeth. However, during my stay at Howard University, Dr. Martin Luther King came there. He had not become famous at that time. He was on his way, though. But the big buzz around the campus was that Dr. Martin Luther King was going to come and be at chapel that Sunday morning. And I thought... Well, I mean, I was curious enough. I didn't want to miss anything that might be really, really good. So I made my way to the chapel, and my girlfriends and I were fortunate to get the back row. Everybody else had to watch it on TV in the library or some other place. Anyway, uh, when he spoke, I knew he was headed for fame and fortune, because, or at least fame, because he was so uh, brilliant. He was a brilliant guy, and, and it just showed. And I couldn't help myself. I have still to this day have uh, an affinity to bright folk. I mean, they really uh, get my attention quick. So after it was over with, you know, I went up and I shook his hand and told him that I thought that, you know, he was just magnificent. And I really appreciated him being there at Howard University. And so that was kind of like the highlight of my college days, the few days that I spent up there uh, in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. So my mother was greatly disappointed because I came back at the end of the first semester and said I wasn't going back anymore. <laughs> and she wanted to know why. And it was because they were so uh, restricted you know, back then, I mean, I couldn't believe it. Here I came from Oklahoma, 
and they were tell they took us in for a freshman orientation, and they told us that we had to be back in the dormitory in our rooms, you know, like at seven thirty. And I thought that's five thirty back in Oklahoma. This is crazy, you know. So yeah. I instantly became became a protester, so to speak. And protesting to me was just breaking all the rules, you know, whatever the rules were, just break them. Yeah. And um, so that was one thing. And then they told the girls, freshman girls, that Howard, they had high standards for Howard women. And they said, Howard women don't do this, and you don't smoke on campus. And if you have to smoke, you know, go in your room, you know, don't walk around smoking a cigarette. And I was thrilled when this girl from New York, her name was Carolyn Rich, I never will forget it. Oh, I thought she was really stuck up, as we called her. And she was walking across the campus one day with this long cigarette holder and a cigarette. And one of the guys ran across and snatched it from her. The guys, were in, they were in on it, too. They didn't think how many women should be doing And stomped it, you know, stomped it on the ground. So I thought, well, don't have to worry about, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't have to worry about me smoking. I, it was not anything I ever desired, but uh, they told us we could not wear pants. Uh, and I asked the question, well, what about when the snow is deep? And no, how would women do not wear pants? So I started wearing pants on campus and dared anybody to say anything to me, you know, when the snow was deep. And they had all these ridiculous rules. I thought they were ridiculous. Uh, they said freshmen, women could not go off campus without being accompanied by a mentor. And I thought that was just, I thought I was grown. And here they were saying a senior mentor had to escort me if I was going to the cleaners or anything. Yeah. And I thought, uh, time to break the rules. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time breaking all of these rules that they had. But they explained they were doing it for our safety. But I just thought that was awful. And so when I left at the end of the semester, I said, I, I won't be coming back. This right here is not for me. So I came back home, and um, my mother asked, okay, now what are you going to do? What's next? I thought, well, I guess I need to go to work or something like that. So anyway, at a young age, uh, I was employed by Western Electric Company, which was a part of the AT&T system at that time. And the, the funny thing about that, I hadn't really planned, I didn't go out there to apply for a job. Because by then, I had gotten married, you know, at the age of 19, 18, 18. And um, I was just accompanying another friend who was looking for the job. She came by one morning and said, asked what I was doing. I said, nothing. So she said, right out there with me, I'm going to apply for a job. Well, at that time, Western Electric assumed everybody walking through the employment a door wanted a job, and as I said, I loved learning, and so they handed me a form and said, "Fill this out." I filled it out. 
So the bottom line was I got hired and the other person didn't. And it was pretty strained in the car, you know, on the way back home when she was comparing notes, what they tell you? They told me to come back. They didn't tell her to come back. <laughs> so the relationship was strained for a little bit, but yeah. eventually she got on. But I started, you know, at Western Electric out in the shop and uh, is a manufacturing company. And these shop jobs, it just wasn't what I thought. And so uh, it was funny because they evidently wanted me to come to work real bad because the first day I went to work, I had a terrible migraine headache. I never had migraine headaches. They sent me to medical. Medical said, go see your doctor and don't come back until he signs this little pink slip. Well, that was the first day. So I went to, I went to the doctor. The doctor, Dr. Charles Atkins, um, told me that I had the flu or something like that. And I said, well, okay. So he asked me, uh, he said, I'll give you a penicillin shot. I said, well, they told me at work not to come back until you sign this little pink sheet of paper. And he looked and he said, you're working at a Western Electric Company? And I, I said, well, yeah. Well, I didn't know that Dr. Charles Atkins, who was uh, an advocate for civil rights around here, uh, had been trying with the Urban League to get African-Americans hired out there. I did not know that. So when he saw that, he started pumping me up with this penicillin every day. So in three days' time, he had me back out there on the job after pumping. And he, he, he called um, Nathaniel Johnson, who was the president of the Urban League here, and said, I got a young lady here. You need to talk to her. And he sent me over to talk to Nathaniel Johnson. And Johnson told me this was bigger than me. He said, this is bigger than you, Anita. Just think, you're opening doors for all these people. I hadn't seen it that way at all. As a matter of fact, see, I had gone out there in October, and they asked me, they were ready to hire me in October, and I, they asked if I had questions. I said, yeah. Uh, how many days do you get off for Thanksgiving? They said, one. I said, one. <laughs> They said, um, yeah, one. I said, well, um, how many did you get off at Christmas? They said, one. I said, one? <laughs> and they said, well, what did you expect? I said, I expected to be off Thanksgiving Day, then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And they said, no, just one. And same thing with Christmas. And they said to me, uh, when I told them what I expected at Christmas, I said, well, I expected to be out Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, you know, and on through New Year's Day. They said, we'll tell you what, why don't you come back and start working like January the 4th? <laughs> that was October, from <laughs> October to January the 4th. And then I got sick the first day. Yeah. So that was just uh, unthinkable. So... 
Nathaniel Johnson put it on my mind. Anytime you feel like quitting, don't do it, don't do it, call me up first. I cannot tell you how many trips I made to his office, you know, because this working out in the shop, he kept reminding me it was bigger than me, you know. It just, I was opening doors for other people. But I didn't appreciate working out there in the shop. As a matter of fact, when they hired me, they hired me with an apology, saying that they were sorry because they knew I was qualified for more. But they had, Western Electric Company hadn't reached that point yet. So I struggled under that for a while. And then I decided, see, I had not made up my mind, mind excuse me, had not made up my mind uh, what I was going to major in. They hadn't invented uh, much in the way, they didn't have much in the way of computers at the time. They had those big mainframes, you know, where you count the bits and the bytes and all that stuff. But I didn't know that. So, all I knew is I wanted to be paid and I wanted to be paid well. And my uncle-in-law had heard his sister was coming back from California and she was talking about, oh, how much money these people made in her field, and uh, he called me. I went over. She explained that she was in the computer field and they were just making money hand over fit. Oh, she was ringing my bell. And uh, I, I wanted to know, well, what do you have to do in order to get in the computer field? They said, she said, first of all, you have to like math. You have to love math. Oh, she was really ringing my bell because I was great at math. I really, truly was. So um, then I started looking around to see who was teaching computer science or computer programming. And there was only one place teaching it, and that was OSU Tech. And, and I don't know, it was on Ninth and Klein at that time. And uh, I found after I got out there, now I was still working, they wouldn't let me quit. So... Um, I found out that before I could get hired or get in school to study it, that I needed to pass this program as aptitude test. Well, I had been out of school then for a while, and that long story short, um, they told me that I couldn't get into OSU because they were reserving the first seats for those who were already in the field. And I thought, what do you mean in the field? And you just started. Well, they said they were talking about key punch operator. Well, I wasn't a key punch operator. And so I kept, so they said, do you have to take this computer aptitude test? Well, that's all they had to tell me. I had to take the test. So I went back home, waited a few weeks, and called them back and said I wanted to take the computer aptitude. I didn't tell them who I was. So I took the computer aptitude test, and I had been out of school eight years or so at that point, and I did miserably on the test. I mean, I was just doing good to, pa to pass it, baby. I went back home, and the results came, and sure enough, it was a D. D on the computer aptitude test. Uh, 
But I didn't give up. Yeah. I called later and asked when, when the first day of school was. And so they told me registration was. And so I went to register. And the first thing they asked me was, did I take that computer after two tests? And I said, yes. And I got nervous. And they said, what's your name? They looked. They couldn't find the card, the results. <laughs> and I got real tested by the end and said, I took it. It was at such and such a time, such and such a date. And they said, yeah, that's right. They kept digging. They couldn't find it. So they let me go ahead and enroll anyway. So I got through out there, and I was working full-time, and at one point, I was out there full-time, and I graduated on the president's honor roll. <laughs> and graduation uh, week, they were going through their records, and then they saw that D, <laughs> and they said, so much for standardized tests. <laughs> Because I was on the president's honor roll. But then, I, they wouldn't let me into the honor fraternity because they said women couldn't belong. And so I said, well, okay, I got the degree. And so there that went. But that was the beginning of, you know, quite a career of going to school. So fast forward, we got transferred my... Um, ex-husband got transferred to Memphis, Tennessee with his job and uh, so we moved to Memphis for the first time and uh, they didn't want me to leave Western Electric by the end because by the end I had been in a movie and I had made many presentations and I had written uh, uh, an award winning uh, paper, technical paper on um, a project that I had uh, finished, and it was one of nine papers nationwide that was selected. I mean, I was really doing great, and the general manager knew me, and so I I kept telling the other engineers I was a I ended up being a, a programmer for the um, electrical engineering people. And I hated electric, electrical engineering. I just, but I found out that I liked product engineering better, and so I did project uh, projects for them, programming for them, and so uh, I was real proud of that because this one uh, machine that I programmed, you know, punched out holes on a printed wiring board, you know, so that the other machines could run. So that's when I went into the movie business with Western Electric Company. But when I got ready to leave Western Electric, I went in to turn in my resignation. And uh, they said, oh, no, you can't leave. So that's when I found out how corporations really work. They can do what they want to do. And so by the time I got down to Memphis, they had a job waiting on me as supervisor of the computer center down there. And the interesting thing, I thought when I went to Memphis, I said, oh, this is really it. 
I, you know, stacks records and all those exciting things were down there. And uh, there, I, every, everybody thought just people on the street, like the gas uh, attend, servant, uh, attendant, excuse me, gas station, service station attendant at the gas uh, station would always say, are you a school teacher? And I said, no. Well, what do you do? I said, I work for South Central Bell. Oh, then you must be an operator. No, I'm not an operator. I had already turned those jobs down. I would not go unless I got my terms and conditions. And they gave it, they gave me everything I asked for. And that's when I really found out how they work. My professor at OSU had told me, well, Anita, you have to open your mouth and just say so. You have to knock on the door. You can't just stand out there and wait on them to discover you. So I learned very quickly that, you know, you had to be kind of aggressive. And so I had a, a nice career. I did leave the bail system at one point. I uh, went with the Postal Service, the U.S. Postal Service in Washington, D.C., and uh, I started in Memphis with the Postal Service as a regional office. And boy, I learned some things about some folk in Oklahoma. When I said that, it was a regional office and it was real estate and buildings. And uh, I learned that the post office was the largest real estate holding company in the world. And so my job was to keep up with the inventory in the southern region. And so Dr. Uh, Gravely Finley, who, would, who I knew here, owned a bunch of post offices. I did not know that. I said, oh, that's how he got to be so rich. He owned real estate. He owned a lot of post offices. And... A whole bunch of other things. I said, well, look at this, what I'm learning. I was always learning something. But anyway, I eventually ended up, the last place where I worked was Western Electric Company. I mean, um, yeah, it was Western Electric Company, first and foremost in Springfield, New Jersey. And then I left Western Electric Company and went with AT&T. And that's when I started doing... Uh, work with other African Americans in the corporation and with the president of the board, the chairman of the board at the time, uh, Charles, Charlie Brown, we called him. And so we put together the new AT&T when it broke up. And I met a lot of very interesting people, had a lot of very interesting experiences and became well-known throughout the United States states and formed and founded an organization that at the time I left, which was in 1983-84, and came back here after watching television, thinking I should be like Eva Perone, come back and help save my people here in Oklahoma. And I had been accused of a savior mentality. So I took early retirement when they offered it, and I retired at age 45. But the organization that I founded up there, 
grew to be 32,000 people nationwide. And to this day, the organization is still going, and they have 11,000 members, even though the bail system broke up. And it just became AT&T, and the baby bells were spun off and all that kind of stuff. So little did I think that I would end up being here in the arts field, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hanging on to the star of Charlie Christian, the icon that's known all over the world. But here I am, you know, after giving up real estate to do this because it seems that um, the arts, I have a passion for the arts and for learning and teaching, which is part of why uh, I think we ended up being selected, Black Liberated Arts Center, uh, to become a partner with the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., in the Partners in Education program. And that has worked really well for this organization. Black Incorporated is um, 54 years old by now, been around for a while. I wasn't involved, that, you know, because I'm not 90-something yet, you know. But nevertheless, um, I'm not. I wasn't a founding member or anything like that. I was busy traveling, and uh, since I traveled not only on business but you know around the world for pleasure, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and travel with different groups and experienced a lot of history that way uh, too. I mean, history was something that I loved when I was in high school, just like I loved math. And so all of that seems to have come full circle, and that's what I find myself engaged in. Um, But when we were selected by the John F. Kennedy Center, uh, it was after I had uh, talked to Patrick Riley, who was um, over in the Fine Arts Department at Oklahoma City Public Schools, because uh, I had done some work with Patrick, and since this was the largest school district in in the application, see they the Kennedy Center goes Kennedy Center to arts organization in whatever community around the country, and so um, I chose the Oklahoma City Public School District because it was the largest one, and we had done the most work here prior to being selected. So we were one of 53 applicants, the only one from Oklahoma that was selected that year. And so that has worked out really well because I met people like Jeffrey Canada, who did a Harlem's Kids Zone up in Harlem and went on to make movies and that sort of stuff. I met him through the Kennedy Center. I'm, everything that the Kennedy Center has is, is a resource to to us here in Oklahoma. So uh, I had an opportunity to bring Alvin Ailey, the B Company, it was called at that time, to Oklahoma City. They had never been here. There are many, many firsts that um, this organization has because 
because we are a member of the Kennedy Center Network, which is in 47 states. Um, anything that's available to the Kennedy Center is available to us, and we're glad about it. We are real proud. And we've done wonderful work, and as you can see on that uh, Oklahoma Gazette article at the top there, we made the front cover of the Oklahoma Gazette with the Wilson School, which was the pilot school that we took from down in the ashes, way down. You could even find it on the low-performing low bar was here. They were way down. Uh, so those children, they were almost considered throwaway children. Uh, the neighborhood around it thought they couldn't learn you know, because they came from dysfunctional families, that sort of thing. But in two years, they were at the top of the choice just about. And they have risen to national prominence, and that's our work. We do excellent work over here, and we're happy about that. Our standards are high, and anything that we do, you know, you can count on it. You can count on it being the best of the best. And uh, young people have found a place with us over here. It's not adult entertainment or adult learning or adult. It's a family-friendly organization, and we reach and teach wherever children are, even um, adults. And uh, they have succeeded. They've now gone on, those students who have come through the Kennedy Center program have gone on to become artists, uh, teachers, architects, you name it. And interestingly enough, one of my high school classmates who worked for IBM for a long time did a study and they found that those who took music uh, had developed critical thinking skills that they were looking for in the workplace. And so um, that finding has borne out in the work that we do around here. Um, sometimes the teachers come back, the young people from Wilson will come back as a teacher and work in the school. And that's really good. That's called paying it forward. And so that's, we do a lot of paying it forward here. We bring artists from all over the world. As a matter of fact, the first international uh, dance company that we brought here was uh, Les Ballets du Senegal. And they were great. There was a first for them, of course, and nobody else here has presented them. Uh, but we did, we did it out in uh, Midwest City. And it was so funny because we were always running short of money, you know, up till the last minute. And I t you had to have half of the money up front and the other half was due at half the time. <laughs> it was so disastrous almost. Uh, they had danced and old people were just, oh, the, the audience was diverse, very diverse. And they just thought that was just the most marvelous performance. And I had run to the bank <laughs> to draw out the money 
to pay them at halftime, right, while they were dancing. Halftime came, and I came back from the bank <laughs> and slammed the door on my trunk, and the money was in the trunk, and, and so were my keys. And so <laughs> they stopped the show, and, they, and everybody was, what's wrong? You know, this intermission has lasted so long. I had to call a locksmith to <laughs> come out and open the trunk of my car so that I could get the money out to pay them because we didn't have enough money to pay them at the end without going to the bank. So they breathed a sigh of relief, and I did too, uh, on that performance. But um, it's been it's it's been wonderful, uh, particularly when people come back and they say, "Because of you, I got my PhD degree," or "Because of you, my child made an A plus," and you know it was on this history of Charlie Christian, or it might have been some other history. Um, I never thought that I would end up writing books, but I have, and uh, I get calls from all over the world, seriously, all over the world, uh, saying that they're coming to the United States and they're coming here because of this history, and they would like to interview me about what I know, and just... uh, during Black History Month this year. Gosh, I almost lost my voice. I talked so much. I was doing presentation once, twice, even three times <laughs> in one day, in one day. And I thought, oh, surely somebody else knows something. But um, the phone rings all the time, you know, with those kinds of requests or requests to uh, help with uh some book they may be writing. So I've written seven books, and I probably would have written another one for Arcadia Publishing Company, the History Press, except the guy who was the salesperson for this area, for this region, he used to come here all the time, and he wanted me, he kept saying, well, you don't understand, you don't understand. Not everyone is a good writer. And so we like the way you write. So I've written, you know, the two on uh, music and the one on education was the last one. And I had to justify that one uh, to Arcadia because they said the the education books didn't do well. I said, you're so crazy about that little music book. I said, you will find that that education book will outpace that one. And... Uh, sure enough, two weeks, two, three weeks after it came out, it was number three on the top bestseller list in Oklahoma uh, in the in the nonfiction paperback. And Arcadia was always impressed because I was always in a hurry, you know, to get these things done. And the first time with the music book. You know, they talked to me, you know, like in uh, early fall and asked when did I want the book to be ready. And I said by June 1st. 
that was festival time. I wanted for the festival. Uh-huh. And they thought, well, no, it usually takes about 12 to 18 months at best, you know, to get a book out. And I said, well, I wanted it out June 1st. So he said, well, let me explain it another way. He said, um, we have to go through our process, and they explained their process took six months. And here I was talking about less than six months. And they said, um, so when do you want it out? I said, June 1st. <laughs> and they thought, surely she just. So uh, they said, well, i tell you what. I mean, I don't want you to lose any money because if we don't meet that deadline, you know, and it goes over, well, you're going to have to pay. And so I said, June 1st, that's when it has to come out. So I got busy, and so I came up with all of the titles and all that, and I was really doing this on the fly. I was doing it as I was doing my other work, and I was writing night and day, basically. And so everything I was sending them, they had explained to me they had to go to a committee first and all that. So by the time I sent that last piece, which was like uh, in early November, you know, for the committee to see it and make a decision, the guy says, I'm going, they're meeting today. I'm going to take this in there today. And I said, well, that's on you. They went, they loved it. He couldn't wait. He called me right back and said they were so impressed. And so I thought, oh, now I got to write it. Really, I got to write it right quick. So I, I worked night and day getting all the narrative and, you know, following all their instructions. And so it was uh, December the 18th, I believe. I called them up and I said, well, I'm ready to send it. They couldn't believe it. I said, I have one question. They said, what's that? I said, somebody called me up. I was ready to push the button and said, there's one guy you just have to put in there. And I had never heard of this guy, Dupree Bolton. I said, I never heard of him. He said, well, you have to listen to his music. I'm going to send you his music. And I heard the music, and I thought, he needs to be in there. So I said, but I'm going to leave it to you. I'm going to send you what he sent me, and you tell me, because I'm ready to push the button right now. So they listened, and they came back, and they said, okay, include him in the book. And so I did, but I made, I made the deadline one day later, mm-hmm. and they couldn't believe it. They, they praised me so hard for what, writing that book in four months' time. They said, that's unheard of. So I said, I won't do it again. I promise <laughs> you that. I will never do that again. Yeah. So anyway, that's how the first one came out. And then when I justified, I mean, I had to ask, answer 20 questions on why this education book was going to be so great. And so they said, well, we'll reluctantly go along with you. And 
like that. So as soon as it, I still got the emails where they sent me, the, Anita, we know that you work really hard on this, and we're just so proud of you, and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, that, I mean, you know, I felt satisfied, you know, that it was appreciated and that I was kind of highly regarded, you know, by a national publishing, history publishing company. Mm -hmm. And so they have been asking for years now, when's the next one coming out? Well, I've got the title and all that. I just haven't taken the time to do it. But if things go well, it'll be coming up, and that may be the last one that I write, you know, for that uh, publisher. So uh, a lot has come and gone on that, but there is a lot more to tell about this very rich African-American history uh, in Oklahoma. It's been kind of hidden underneath the radar for a long time, but it's... it's uh, it's out there. It's out there. And this festival here that we're coming up on, it's going to be so good. I mean, it really is. We we um, got some funding from New York a few years ago called the Black Seed Initiative. And it was from uh, some funding sources like the Ford Foundation, Mellon Foundation. And in the interest of saving black theater in America because they believe that uh, that is the only way that the history can be carried forward and preserved and not disappear like the dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And so they've been very supportive, and I've gone to a couple of their conferences up in New York. Well, one in Detroit, the ones in New York were by Zoom because of the pandemic. But there's one coming up in in uh, July, and this one will be in St. Louis. And I will be attending that, but you meet people. I keep meeting people from all over the world at a, at a lot of these conferences and experiences that I've had. I, and so... This festival coming up will um, have folk like um, a combo from the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, D.C. And those are young students. And they, oh, they're so good. They, they'll make you holler. I mean, they're just really, really good. And then I found a guy in New York by the name of Mark Whitman, who is a Charlie Christian-style uh, guitarist. And there are not that many in the world. His music is very complicated. Uh, it's taught at the university level. And there are many universities around the world. Not many, but, I mean, uh, not a whole lot, but like the University of Madrid, they teach it. Uh, they teach it in Denton, Texas down there at the University of Texas, at North Texas, I think it may be. Um, but there are about six or seven Charlie Christian-type guitarists 
in the country, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in the country for sure. And um, his he's a, he's such a great guitarist because he stands alone in history for his accomplishment. Nobody else did it. So much so that, you know, uh, this little CD was put out by Starbucks National. And it's when uh, jazz meets the guitar. And these are the 12 greatest guitarists that they believe. And Charlie Christian's right at the top of the list. And it was a limited number. You cannot get those anymore. And practically all of my friends who are... My daughter, I, my oldest daughter, she knew that I was on the Charter Christian. So they all bought one at the Starbucks until they ran out. Now you can't get them because they don't publish them anymore. But um, on my own, personally, I have, since I've been in the arts business, there have been some benefits. Here I thought the only thing... Um, the only difference at 17 years old between me and President Eisenhower was that he played golf, right? Well, it turns out that later on, in, as I started to research and write and travel, he was probably one of the greatest presidents that ever lived because he started the National Teach of the Year okay. program. He started the Citizens Ambassadors program which I travel, you know, to uh, China on. And I also uh, went to uh, South Africa once with uh, the Citizens Ambassadors Program. And uh, you learn so much about the culture. Uh, Eisenhower had said, I found, that there'll never be peace in the world until people get to know each other. So it's under the people, the people, project that he started, you know, to bring peace. He really was not a big war man. He could fight, no question about it, but he was more into peace. And so he he set those programs up in place. And here I find myself traveling <laughs> when all I thought <laughs> was that he liked to play golf. Uh, but he, he was really quite the person and on that people-to-people -people citizens ambassadors program, uh, I went to South Africa once with that. Then I went to South Africa right after uh, Nelson Mandela was released from prison and became president, and I met him at his palace. I went to with um, H. Leon Sullivan, who was uh, the founder of uh, Opportunities Industrialization Centers. Uh, he was asked by the United Nations uh, when they were after apartheid. Uh, they asked Sullivan to present to them some business principles by which the rest of the world could do business again with South Africa. And so I went on three trips with him. I went back to South Africa and uh, I have, I was given a constitute, their 
preliminary constitution, which became the constitution. They were in the process of voting on it when I was over there for that country. Uh, so I met Bishop Tutu, and not just over there, but when he came to the United States, I flew to California to meet with him out there when he came to the United States. Uh, when in South Africa with H. Leon Sullivan, I went to went with him on the African African American. Um, what was that called? He had an initiative that he started. The African 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 American Conference. That's what it was. And. It was amazing because the conference, he called all of these kings and presidents of every African nation to meet. And we, I was sitting in the room. I was sitting in the room. I traveled with uh, several friends of mine and, you know, around the United States. And so there these four ladies were sitting up there with all these kings and presidents from the African continent. And they were talking about what their needs were. And I've never seen anybody as visionary as H. Leon Sullivan. I see why they chose him to put these principles in place. One African... uh, dignitary said he had a problem with education they didn't have enough teachers and the children didn't have school supplies Uh, they didn't even have enough paper and pencils you know in a school day and Mr. Sullivan stood there and said I tell you what I'm going to do I mean he solved the problem right then and there on the spot He didn't say, I'm going to go back to America and raise money and all of this stuff. I mean, that's how we do it over here. He said, there's an organization called The Links, and they have chapters all over the United States, which is true, because they've got one here in Oklahoma. And he said, a lot of those people in that organization are teachers. And he said, the president of The Links is in New York City. And I'm going to see her, and I'm going to tell her to send out a letter to every chapter in the United States and tell each one of those members, it's a a bunch of ladies, tell them to go to a five and ten cent store or someplace like that with a shoebox and just buy everything they think they might need, a student might need during a school day. Pencil, paper, you know, erasers, whatever. They put it in the shoebox, and I will have them ship all those shoeboxes to New York, and IBM is going to have a ship waiting, and we'll ship all those supplies. And I thought, there was no money exchanged at all. You know, not, so it wasn't like somebody could put it in their pocket. I was simply amazed that this man could stand there and just come up with a solution and he said and I'm going to find out about all the retiring teachers and I'm going to ask them to come up and they did come over and teach in these classrooms and they did 
and some of them were from Oklahoma. Yeah. Yes, they, they, yes, they were. And so I've been a witness to history, you know, and I've been walking in history. A lot of people walk in history every day, but they don't know it. Um, but when you are cognizant of what's going on in the rest of the world, then you uh, know that. And I firmly believe that, you know, the responsibility is with the one who knows. And I take that very seriously. And so I'm more than willing to share and to help anybody out. If, if I can open my mouth and say something, or I can write a book and pass it on. Yeah. Um, right now I have uh, a request from a young lady who says she's traveling now, but she says she's in Ghana, but she wants to write uh, her master's uh, thesis on the women of Deep Deuce. And so she said, I've looked, and you're the one that seems to have the information. Would you please talk to me? And I said, yes, I will. I said, but you know, you have to wait just a little bit and give me a little bit of time here, but I'm going to help you on that project. So I don't usually turn down requests, and I think the whole world knows that because they keep finding me. <laughs> so that was that. But... uh I did want to share with you this one little story, mm -hmm. which uh, I told a couple of times uh, because I did witness that. I, in fact, I was a part of it. Uh, a friend of mine's daughter was getting married over in Paris. So I like to travel. So. Away I went with my bags, you know, to Paris. And while over there, this uh, other friend who was with me is a bunch of Okies over there because they're from here. Uh, we went to Paris, and then when we were finished touring around in Paris, then we looked at the map, and Madrid was not that far away. <clears throat> so we decided to hop a plane and go down to Madrid. And uh, it wasn't that many people speaking English, you know, in Madrid, Spain. They, they spoke Spanish. Well, I took a little bit of Spanish when I was in high school here in Oklahoma City. And so, you know, I could pick out a few words here and there and make my way a little bit. We went one day on a tour to the King's Palace. We wanted to see how the king lived. And on the way back, I said to my girlfriend, um, you know, I think we're low on water. You know, they tell you to drink bottled water only, something like that. So I said, when we get close to the hotel, as if I knew my way, which I didn't. <laughs> I said, we'll just stop. We'll just jump off the bus at the grocery store nearby and get some water for the room and do it that way. And she said, okay. She was following me. That's blind leading the blind, right? <laughs> we got the water at the off off at the grocery store, and then you know I said, "Well, I'm sure the hotel is just a couple of blocks away." Wrong, wrong, wrong. We were lost, and there were no taxi cabs, nothing, barely any traffic at all. 
a lonely car every once, and we among all these huge buildings. And I thought, oh, we're lost. And we couldn't even flag down a taxi because you didn't see any. And while I was trying to figure out how to get back to the hotel, we passed this small building amongst these huge buildings. These buildings look like they were a block long. And I saw Charlie Christian's picture on the cover of a a book in this window. It was just sitting there on this little tripod. And I forgot I was lost, you know, and I thought, oh, gee, I've got to get in here and find out what this is all about. I'm in Madrid. Pinch me. Pinch me. So I go in in the little store, and it's a music store. And so the guy, I said, that book, that book you have in the window? He says, yes. I said, what is that? He said, it's a music book. They teach Charlie Christian music. Uh, they have a Charlie Christian music course over here. And I thought, uh, well, I need to buy that. And he said, well, that's the only one I have. He said, you're on the campus of the University of Madrid. And I said, oh, that's why we don't see any cars. He said, yes. And so I said, well, he said, that's the only one I have. I said, I'm sorry, but you have to sell it to me because if I go back and tell it, you know, they won't believe me. So he sold it to me. I said, now then, you have to tell me how to get back to the hotel. So he told us, you know, we could walk a couple of blocks another way and then another block, and then, you know, I could see some cabs. So that's how we got back. But Charlie Christian just stunned me over there in Madrid. So... That's Charlie Christian. He's known worldwide. And if you search for him on the Internet, you know, you'll see on any given day that there are more than 72 million inquiries against that name in every major country, in every major language. Now, look here. I don't know anybody else in the world that has that kind of track record. You know, especially when he's been dead since 1942. Come on now, you know that's an icon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Charlie Christian stands alone in history. Billy D. Williams said it right when he told Charlie Christian's only daughter that one thing that you should always remember about your father, that he was first. He said, it's okay to be great, which he was, but he was first. Nobody knew how to play that electric guitar, putting the music in the technology. He was playing the electric guitar before it was even invented because he stuck the microphone in the hole of the guitar and plucked the strings. And when it came out, he was the only one that knew how to put the technology and the music together. And he took off, and that's why Benny Goodman loved himself. And he would, he, Benny Goodman didn't think that at first, you know, because he thought he was a country bumpkin. And uh, by the time um, Benny Goodman's brother-in-law, John Hammond, Sneaked him up there on that bandstand doing that intermission. 
out there in Beverly Hills. And the people danced and danced till they couldn't dance anymore. Benny Goodman didn't need any more convincing. And he was, um, a lot of people say, in fact, John Hammond said, he thought that uh, Benny Goodman probably took credit for a lot of the songs that uh, he put his name on because he's a very creative guy. Had that music knowledge like nobody else. And so if you ask somebody around here, and I've asked guitarists, well-known guitarists around here, would you do a Charlie Christian piece or two? And they said, no, it's too hard. It's too hard. So uh, he stands alone in history. And so he he deserves all of the kudos forever. And I said, Ian, look, look, look at this. Charlie Christian did this on electric guitar. If guitarists knew their history, they would tell you, just like George Benson, just like Santana, down here, it, it was a Ford Center there, said, I know where I am. I am in the place where Charlie Christian grew up. They acknowledged that, that if he hadn't opened those doors, then they never would have become who they have become. Yeah. And so it's a, a not-so-well guitarist who doesn't know who Charlie Christian is. And as far as I can see, as long as the guitar is played, Charlie Christian will be remembered into perpetuity. And I don't see any end to manufacturing guitars because everybody loves them. I mean, I don't care if it's gospel. You'll see it at the church house. You'll see it at the nightclub. You'll see that guitar everywhere. And he brought it to life. And in this festival this year, the legacy still lives. That's our theme. And we've got an international artist that's designing our logo and our um, banner side. We, we're going to have uh, pole banners again this year. We started that around here. This organization, as a matter of fact, has started a lot of things that others are just not catching on to. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of hard when everybody's trying to take your stuff and run on down the street and really don't want to give you credit or the respect of saying, once in a while, you know, somebody will come back and they'll say, oh, Anita, you know, here's, here's what I got with what you gave me. But uh, the lady in Ghana who wants to talk about the women of uh, Deep Deuce, now that's a little difficult because it was a man's world. But there were some, like Zia N. Page Bro, who taught Charlie Christian and all those other famous people 
and who ended up being a good friend of Duke Ellington, who came back here for her service when she died. And there were other women on Deep Deuce, Roscoe Dungy's sister, Drusilla Dungy Houston, who was a strong advocate for women. And, uh, but her brother was the one that got all the publicity because it was a man's world. And uh, he did have a vehicle to report the news and to get it to the community. And uh, I worked briefly for Roscoe Dungy when he had the Black Dispatch in between children. When I was pregnant with my uh, oldest daughter, I used to run little articles in there to the Black Dispatch because I also belonged to a modeling club at that time. And so one day, I went in to see Mr. Dungy to see if he'd put an article in the paper, and he asked me what I was doing these days, because he didn't know me, but he, see, he would see me come in. And I said, well, I'm on maternity leave from Western Electric Company. And so he said, well, I got a little job I want you to do for me. And I thought, what? <laughs> I'm just running in here, <laughs> bringing little articles. And uh, that was when W.P. Bill Atkins had a paper, and he was the one that created that mall out there in Midwest City. Uh, he was running for governor. And he told me he wanted me to go down and uh, work in the Democratic headquarters uh, which was at Central Central Bank at the time. And I said, well, what am I going to do? He said, well, I want you to work here in my office first. So he had me typing up all of this stuff, you know, because I could type. And um, then he started sending me out on assignment to go over there, go over to the Republican headquarters and get their literature so we could see it and then we can put this. And I thought... This is nerve-wracking. You know, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to be doing all that. And he, he kept trying. He said, you never know who you will meet. And he was right, because that's how I met George and I. Because <laughs> George and I was running for a lieutenant governor at the time. And I thought he was the funniest person I had ever met in my life, because he had such that's a— hilarious. Yes, he is. <laughs> and so he wasn't—he was a bachelor at the time. Yeah. And— uh, he would come in there all the time. George and I was always in there. So George, why George and I won, but W.P. Bill Atkinson did not win, and so uh, that's how I met them. So when I kind of look back on my life, it's been pretty interesting, and uh, I wouldn't trade shoes with anybody. You know, even though it's been really tough and challenging at times, but. Uh, I win a lot. I don't lose much. I do. I mean, just hearing you speak, there's a sense of, you know, you definitely don't take no for an answer and you definitely don't give up. No, I right? don't. No. With anything. That's right. And I got that primarily from watching my grandfather as a farmer 
you know, because farmers, boy, they, they are dependent on nature, no question about it. And he was a businessman, too, you know. Uh, he may not have had a lot of money, but he knew how to make money and he knew how to save money. And I used to see him, if the watermelons were really good, he'd take those seeds and spread them out on the newspaper and let them dry so he could have a good crop the next year. And he did that with, you know, all of his, his, his farming. I said, I know one thing from watching my grandfather and um, how he raised everything on that farm. He did. He raised everything. The only thing we had to go to the store for was salt and flour, maybe, you know. But I, I learned that I, what I learned down there, I know one thing. Come with me, I can survive. I know how to survive. There's no question about it. So I may not like it, you know, going down those paths, but but I can if if uh, that's the challenge. I can meet it. When you mentioned the festival, when is the festival in June? June first through the third, and okay. we have a, a great partnership with Oklahoma City Community College, and it's going to be there. Uh, it's, I think it's ideal for an outdoor festival and we're coming up with uh, an outdoor festival this year okay. bringing it from the uh, inside to the outside again Yeah, and um, we're excited about it uh, you just wait till we get some of those banners up flying you'll come back and say oh that's what she was talking <laughs> about but uh, we're, we're very excited about the um, not only the Italian artist who's coming up with our design this year, but the, I, I mentioned some of the artists that will be in there. And then we have some homegrown ones. Uh, one of them is Taylor Deneen. It's just That's a picture of her. She grew up here in Oklahoma City. Taylor is, her, she composes her own music. She's, and she sings her own Very talented. Brilliant. She graduated magna cum laude, you know, from uh, the Berkeley School of Music. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. So did Mark Whitman. The other, the other one that's coming from New York, he graduated from that same school. So they're both going to be in the festival. That's awesome. And, oh, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. But she was, you know, uh, excelling in music when she was what, 10, 11, 12 years old. We were presenting folk like that on stage. Melinda Wakefield is another one that we presented at 11 years old on our stage. And yeah. She lives in New York City now. She went to uh, Manhattan School of Music. And she and her husband and their couple of boys, I think, uh, are yeah. living there now. But she's been back here, appeared in... Uh, one of the shows, I think Andy Get Your Gun was was the one she and I thought, what? I sent you off to school and here you are down here at the Civic Center in that show. Yeah. So um, they go on to bigger and better things, and that's what we hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that's what we hope for our, our younger generation. Yeah, and that's all through uh, the Black Liberal Arts Center. Yeah, that's all. All the stuff Black, you're doing is through that. Yeah, got you.
And before I close this down with my stories, I still have tons of them. <laughs> we could do this for 12 hours, for a, 12 hours a day for a week, it, and we still wouldn't get to all the stories. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But we've taken on a new project. Okay. Um, the State Arts Council, Oklahoma Arts Council, is one of our funders around here. Mm. And they said, oh, Anita, uh, you know, there are overlooked and underserved populations. And one of them is the military. Mm-hmm. How about that? So they said, "Can you? would you do a military program? I said, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've got resources. We can do that. Yeah. So last year we did a military program, and there was a lady down in Shawnee, Oklahoma. She had been up here before because her husband, her dad, excuse me, her dad was a World War I veteran. And I've got his uniform right in there in impeccable condition that she yeah. brought up here. Uh, but we honored her father and had an exhibit of many of the things that he had when he was in the service. And then we had um, a program where uh, this poet, she's a retired military, and she is an awesome poet. And she uh, did poetry which challenged why you would pass by a, a homeless veteran and not give him a dollar when he's done so much for he or she, usually he, uh, when they've done so much for you and for this country. And so, you know, it, it causes you to think about that. And then not too long ago, I was given the name and uh, phone number of a young lady who has started a um, center for homeless veterans. And we're doing some things over there, and we're very excited because uh, in April, we have a couple of uh, renowned artists around here Mm -hmm. who will be doing arts therapy because the homeless people and veterans, you know, they have PTSD. They do come with issues. Nobody wants to be bothered. She is being bothered, and we're helping her. I said, you know, I'm going to help you. Absolutely. So uh, they're going to do some arts therapy, teaching them how to paint, uh, that sort of thing. And then there's an African storyteller that I met through the Kennedy Center, and he's coming in April, and he's going to work with them so that they can fashion their own stories. And so that's what we're doing for the military. That's what's next. That's what's next, yeah. coming up in April. Yeah. Yeah, so we we reach down to... I particularly get satisfaction from reaching those that... Yeah would be left behind. Right. Just like we did at Wilson. And I look at Wilson. It's nationally renowned. And uh, some of these young people, nationally renowned. Yeah. And James Kirksey, that's another one who was a young man that was on our stage. Mm-hmm. 
He played at Carnegie Hall, and I went up there to see him. I said, if you're going to play, I'm going. He was the only one from Oklahoma selected to play with the National uh, Symphony, Youth Symphony. And now, today, he is conductor and composer with two orchestras, one in Seattle and one in San Francisco. And we're so proud about it because we did it. We helped them and they became as much as they could with the training and with the guidance Mm -hmm. and the stages that we've, you know, uh, put them on. James Kirksey, he's so brilliant. Honest to goodness, that boy just drips brilliance. But um, Albert Eisen Pratt, I saw on TV once on the Good Morning America show, one of those shows. I said, I need to get him to Oklahoma. I keep trying to help Oklahoma out. I think we need help. I mean, we're moving and we're moving at pretty good speed but we're coming from way behind Mm -hmm. and so I'm trying to help Oklahoma catch up and uh, to the extent that we have partnerships and can do um, some work together you know we'll get there faster but not this kick you off the side of the road and try to run over you a couple of times and get you out of the way. I say that, but (laughs) it's funny. It gets to be funny because the question arises, or at least it used to arise. I know where it was arising from. Uh, Where's your secession plan? I said, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And folks said, um, who, who are the successors to you? And I said, who's asking the question? I will silence on that one. So I said, it, it, at one point, I said, you tell whoever's asking you that I went to my doctor for my annual exam, and he said he was going to add 20 more years to my life. (laughs) They quit asking the question. (laughs) But I do want people to know that my vice president of the board said it best. He looked at the board and he said, you are the secession plan. And so Black Liberated Arts does have a secession plan, and we are going into perpetuity. And our work is going with us into perpetuity. It will live on. And when they come to the festival this year, they'll know that the legend still lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a great time. It is going to be a great time. Yeah. But um, we're, we're reaching out for those uh, young people as well who are in... Uh, Alternative schools, that's another project. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of things. If we just focus on that festival, we'd probably be the richest thing around here. (laughs) You know, because I figure out how to get a dollar from each one of those 72 million inquiries, you know. 
but we've got a lot of work to do, and so we do a lot of work over here, yeah. a whole lot. And the, you can't say I didn't write it down. <laughs> See? Right. So um, I will write some more books, God willing, and the creek don't rise. I'll get, you know, maybe a couple of more books done before I say, well, this is it. This is where I came in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great. I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm not surprised that, you know, the, the people that you have around you, you know, listening to you speak and, and kind of your, you know, like I said earlier, just ability to not give up, ability to not take no for an answer, like, we're going to help you. This is what we're going to do. And then let's just get after it, right? Let's, let's go to work. There's, That's right. You know, there's no, oh, maybe, and there's no, okay, we've got to go back to a board. And no, let's let's figure it out. And that's right. And, and obviously, you know, that's that's the plan. That's where we're going. That keeps you busy every day. That's and, right. Uh, you know, there's a lot more stories to come. That's right. That's, that's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. See that man right there uh-huh. on the, the Oklahoma? Yeah. I had that frame because I call that inspiration. Mm-hmm. And according to the research, he lived to be 115. And the thing that was striking, you know, I was going through some of my archives and I said, now why did I save this paper? So then I started reading the story and I said, oh, I know why I saved it now. When he was 80 years old, he went over to Remington Park he had been playing cards at one of the center. He said, I'm just growing old and I'm not doing anything. So he went and he asked uh, if they had a job. He said he was 80, year old, 80 years old and if they would hire him, he would work. And so they hired him and he became basically an icon out there at Bremerton Park. And the article is so good. And he said he never thinks about quitting. He just thinks about keep keeping uh, on the move, yeah. keep going. He just likes to keep going. And so that's what he did all the way up until. And they tell a little story about how one day he got kind of lightheaded and he fainted. And everybody in Remington Park Wanted to know what was wrong with Mr. Hopkins, you know. <laughs> so he was famous, you know, yeah. and and quite an inspiration. So I said, oh, I have to hang that on the wall, and we'll have to put inspiration on there somewhere. Because yeah. it's, it's inspiring. It is, right? Because we don't, I mean, you know, when the average average life expectancy is, what, mid-70s, late-70s, or whatever yeah. they say, and then yeah. you see someone who's, you know, not just past 100, they're 115 years old. Yeah. You know, like, that's not just, like, just getting over to your century. That's kicking it up the ass. That's <laughs> right. Like, that's, that's right. Yeah. It, I mean, he was working all the way up, I think, until he about couldn't yeah. work, period. Yeah. Yeah. Super and, inspiring. Yeah. So I said, now I know why I saved that article. Yeah. So I've saved a lot. You see a lot of stuff on this desk. Believe me, every little piece of paper is valuable. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, I know we could do this, like we just said, for hours. Um, I think this is a great start. Uh (laughs) I would love to come back maybe uh, after you're done with the festival and and kind of chat about, I mean, whatever else we missed. You need to come to the festival. I do need to come to the festival. Yeah. June 1st through the 6th, you said. 
It's first through the third. First through the third. Yeah. Okay. At Oklahoma City Community College. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at oklahomahof. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and our third sponsor is diffie ford lincoln down in el reno now this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine um play a lot of golf together i've bought my cars from them do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever. I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, diffieford.net, and then on Instagram at diffiefordlincoln. This episode is presented by the Choctaw Nation. The Choctaw people have a rich history and a bright future. At the Choctaw Cultural Center, you can take part in a story 14,000 years in the making. Stroll through our immersive exhibits portraying Choctaw life from the moment our ancestors emerged from the Nani Weha in Mississippian homelands to the Trail of Tears, where we lost so many loved ones, and finally to the modern-day tribe making a positive impact on local communities throughout southeastern Oklahoma. Try your hand at our social dancing and stickball and learn more about our vibrant culture through demonstrations, workshops, and classes. The kids will have a blast in our Luxie Activity Center. The Choctaw Cultural Center is more than a museum. It's a living, breathing experience. Visit ChoctawCulturalCenter.com to plan your visit. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.